Our government seems to collect everything, not only the Smithsonian and the National Archives, but even the Library of Congress. In American Feast, Cookbooks and Cocktails, from the Library of Congress, we get a little peek. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Zach Glitzman and Susan Rayburn. Both are from the Library of Congress. Zach is an editorial assistant in the publishing office, and Susan is a senior writer-editor in the publishing office. They've just written a new book. It's called American Feast, Cookbooks and Cocktails from the Library of Congress. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Liz. Thanks. So, all right, when I read this book, I thought my biggest question was, especially looking at the list of other books that the Library of Congress kind of has in this vein, is this like a thing that the Library of Congress does to kind of say, don't forget us, we're here, and look at this cute book we wrote, or is it really an attempt to explain the holdings of the library to the public, or what? what is the purpose? Well, we've just launched a new series uh, called Collections Close-Up, and this is one of the first of two books, American Feast, Cocktail cookbooks and cocktails from the Library of Congress. But for years now, the library's publishing office has been putting out books to make our collections more accessible to the public. The library is a daunting institution for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people think it's only for members of Congress, but it's not. We're the nation's library. We're open to everyone. Anyone 16 and older can come get a reader's card, can come and do research. And we want people to know that. And we want people to use our collections. And so what this book does, along with other things that we have produced over the years, is show you a slice of what we have on a certain topic and invite you to enjoy that and explore more if you're interested. And a lot of people don't realize, of course, that we've got 172 million items in our collections as of now. And how do we make that how do we make that accessible for people? Well, one of the ways we do it is through our publications and we show you highlights of what we have and interesting things. And we're sort of a gateway then in into looking deeper into what we have at the library. But it's also just a fun book to stay to to read on its own for its own merits to see what it is uh Americans have been doing in the field of, of cookbook writing for the last 250 years. And so we start with colonial era manuscripts and we work our way all the way up to a cookbook on food truck recipes and everything in between and so yes what we're doing is we're asking the public to uh take a look at what we have here at the library you own the library as a as a taxpayer you are an investor in the library you own it and you own these materials and we want you to be aware of that so how did you come to decide what to put in the the book? American Feast is really fascinating. I mean, you really seem to have covered just about everything. 
I love that she chose to talk about Jello and all <laughs> these other things that are, you know, very American. But still, um, there's a, you know, if you have millions of volumes, you have to make choices about what you're going to put in a book like this. And mostly it's choices of exclusion as opposed to choices of, <laughs> you know, positive choices. So how, how, did, how did you do that? Yeah, well, you know, it was certainly a daunting task at first. Um, as Susan said, there's 170 plus million items in the collection. And doing some quick math, you know, roughly 40,000 or so are cookbooks. Kind of depends on how you define a cookbook. You know, is a book about nutrition with recipes, is that a cookbook? A food memoir that has some recipes of the writer's childhood, for example, is that a cookbook? So there are literally tens of thousands of items we could have included. And that doesn't even start um, with all the uh, additional material of images, you know, movie posters, that kind of thing that are related to food and drink. So it certainly was a daunting task at first, but we quickly decided to focus just on cookbooks published in America and related American items. You know, the library does have a rich European collection of cookbooks, including some of the oldest ever printed cookbooks dating back to the 15th century in Italy. But we did decide to hone in on American cookbooks. You know, as we know, American cookbooks cover diverse cuisines. Even if they're just written by Americans, you literally have cuisine from around the entire world. And so we have classics that are familiar to readers and significant important works that maybe are not as well known, but still are very important throughout the history of the American cookbook. Um, you know, lesser known, but still notable books for what they say about the times they were written in. Books that maybe didn't even have that wide of a readership at the time, but still played an important cultural role. Um, and, you know, I, as Susan said, we do have some quirky off, uh, offbeat books, too, to have a variety of, of fun ones that we think our readers will really enjoy learning about. And, you know, it, it did take us a full year to research and write and really hone this list. We worked very closely with our colleagues and other divisions here at the library to showcase these items. We really wanted the book to show that the library has so much to offer when it comes to food and drink. People might not even realize that we have a cookbook collection, but we've actually been collecting cookbooks since just about the beginning of the library. Uh, research shows that at least since 1815, with the purchase of Thomas Jefferson's library after the War of 1812 and the burning of the original Library of Congress, since that time, um, we've been collecting cookbooks. So it, it certainly was a process to narrow it down. So, okay, our library has 40,000 books in it that are mostly cookbooks. You've got to have more than 40,000 cookbooks in the Library of Congress. You know, it, it's it, it, it's a hard thing to measure. Um, again, that's probably the strictest definition of a cookbook. When you think about, you know, food manuals, how to grow your garden, that kind of thing, it, it really does expand to many more. But 40,000 is kind of the safest number we felt comfortable putting on the back of the book. But don't, don't you get... Uh, don't you get a depository copy of everything that is copyrighted? We and do. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. and that's been true for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Do you get rid of them? I mean, that that seems to me forty thousand just seems such a small number of cookbooks based on the total number of books that you have, knowing how many cookbooks are published every year, and almost every one of them, I'm sure, gets sent to you. Uh, what's interesting about what gets sent to us is that they is that if it's a um, self-published work, 
or if it's a small press, sometimes things don't come to us that mm -hmm. should, that are required by law, actually. Uh, and so when you look at some of the our early collections, it's amazing that things were even sent to the library in the 19th century mm -hmm. uh, from some of these groups like church groups, you know, or women's groups that were putting together cookbooks. Uh, it's fantastic that they actually thought to do that. Um, and especially also in the 19th century, uh, copyright was often run by states. And so people were sending books to at the state level, not necessarily sending them to Washington. Okay, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm pushing hard on this, but even in just the 20th century, forget about the 19th century, even in the 20th century, I am, I would stake my, I, I don't even know what, but I would stake <laughs> something on the fact that more than 40,000 cookbooks have been published. Oh, I would agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that more than 40,000 have been published by publishers who want to ensure their copyright over the course of the whole 20th century and 20 years of the 21st century. So why do you have only 40,000? We have more than 40,000, but uh, one of the issues is, as Zach had said, is that the way things are cataloged, they may might not be designated as a cookbook. They might be designated something else in, in a culinary classification. And that has been problematic for us, actually. But we, on the safe side, we had librarians do the, look, look into this for us. We did not do a count ourselves. Uh, we had librarians look into this for us. And that was a figure that they were comfortable with. Um, and who knows, you know, maybe as a result of this book, we will be able to, to uh, nail down further uh, a more accurate figure. Okay. Okay. I will let it go. I will let it go. But I know that 641s have got to be more than 40,000. I just know it. Um, it Library of Congress number 641. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the, the TXs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, okay. We'll let that go. Sorry. It just, it just made me feel like that was a, such a small number out of all of the books that you have. So besides the books that are sent to you for copyright purposes, and I know that in the beginning when the Library of Congress was kind of becoming something, um, you were purchasing books and people also donated their collections to you and whatever. Do you have any other sources of getting books? Well, there are... Um... Sometimes there are bequests. Sometimes things come up for auction. Sometimes um, we also have librarians who are on the lookout for certain things. Um, we things have an interesting way of finding them, finding, finding their way into the Library of Congress, actually. But copyright deposit is the most prominent. That is where most of the books do come from. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, th and there's a related program you might have heard of called cataloging and publication. So if you ever look at like a copyright page of a of a book printed in America, there'll be the, like the Library of Congress um, kind of identification number and then, you know, information about the author and the book and then its subject. So that's a separate but related program to copyright that provides books. Okay. All right. So let's go back to what you decided to, to do. Um, so you've arranged this kind of kind of chronologically i mean there's you know it starts with early work and and goes into more modern work did you were you interested in 
visually interesting cookbooks as well as quirky cookbooks and historical cookbooks? What kind of things were in your mind as you, things that you thought, we can't write this book without without thinking about these things? What What were those things? Well, we were looking at things that were significant, that actually were influential, that really spoke to where America was at a certain time. The book really tracks American history. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether it's in wartime, whether it's in a post-war era, the colonial era, um, what is happening in the country you're seeing show up in a lot of cookbooks. It could be anything from during the Civil War with the Confederate recipe cookbook that you're dealing with a home front that has very uh, has has a very scarce food supply. And how do you deal with that? How do you make coffee out of acorns? Uh, things like that. So you'll you'll see in the book that um, what what we're laying out for you does track with American history. But we also wanted to include what people would be expecting, like really notable first editions, you know, whether it's the first Betty Crocker, the first Julia Childs, things like that. And we thought it would also be fun to include things like, say, the um, the Easy Bake Oven uh, Gourmet cookbook, mm-hmm. things that so many people have an, have an association with with uh, the Easy Bake Ovens who are interested in, in cooking. And who knew that there was going to be a gourmet cookbook for when they were an adult that they would right. be. <laughs> so we were, and we were looking at not just cookbooks, but also uh, individual recipes that may have been kept by prominent and notable people. Um, and so we wanted a variety too. We didn't want you just looking at nothing but, you know, one written recipe after another. Yeah, so all of that absolutely. was factored in. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The visual element was important too. You know, while the historical context probably drove our choices in terms of what books to include, obviously we're not reproducing each book throughout the, you know, mm-hmm. our book. So we had to choose a very important visual image. And so, yes, there are some recipes in our book, but there are a lot of fun covers there's quirky illustrations, and we really wanted a nice visual display. You know, we work very closely with our designer here at the Library of Congress, who's a colleague of ours, Jessica Epting, to create a fun and engaging design that really highlights the books and the other items, while not just having a you know recipe after recipe after recipe. Mm-hmm. Especially our early chapters in the you know colonial period and early republic, before the advent of photography or you know colored images, we really wanted to make sure it had some visual flourishes to really engage the readers. I love the handwritten cookbooks that you include. I think that's really nice because um, I think there's so many reasons why people keep handwritten recipes for one reason or another, even today. And I, I love that someone took the time to put them all down for whatever reason. Sometimes the reasons are, are very sad, um, but Nevertheless, I, I think that was something that was really striking to me that you included those, which I thought was nice. I also like the fact that you included cocktail recipes and not just food recipes. I thought that was really great. What made you decide to do that instead of writing a second book that was just about <laughs> Well, there's a few reasons for that. Um, the first one, you know, to, to back up for a little bit, in terms of this new series collection close-ups, we had a, several dozen ideas of what the first couple books in the series could be on. And so it was definitely a collaborative effort both within the publishing office and other colleagues here at the library to choose the topics. And so cookbooks as one topic and cocktails as another were floated as two separate ideas. But we thought to kind of have maximize, to maximize our appeal, we decided to combine the two with the philosophy that 
cocktails, unlike say beer, wine, or other drinks, really are recipes. They really involve mixing, you know, maybe you're not using heat to cook anything per se, but they really are recipes in the way that a cookbook also has recipes. So we thought that had a lot of sympathetic, um, you know, um, elements to it. And as, of course, you're well aware at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, the word cocktail even is an American invention. And so it felt very appropriate for an American feast to have cocktails included there. And the library has a great collection of related materials, too. I, I thought it was a great it was a great addition and it allowed you to speak about prohibition and what that meant. For sure. We have a collection of things that you could buy anywhere because they had no alcohol in them during uh, prohibition, but that were flavorings for <laughs> all of the uh, bathtub gin or <laughs> whatever that might have been made. And you could actually bypass the multiple numbers of uh, things you might need to actually craft a cocktail by simply buying the syrup that had all the flavorings mm. in it. So you could make a martini and just put martini syrup in it and it would become a martini and have the sort of gin overtones and uh, of the vermouth overtones without having to add all these other spirits or, sure. you know. I love that. Yeah. And it reminded me when I was looking at that part of it in particular that was really fun. So what what I want to ask each of you this question. Um Susan, let's start with you. What was your very favorite recipe that you chose for this book? And then Zach, I'll ask you that one after Susan's answer. Okay, that's a, that's a tough one, but I will probably go with Rosa Parks recipe for featherlight pancakes. Okay. In part because not only does it include peanut butter, which is uh, kind of interesting, but Rosa Parks wrote this recipe on the back of a manila envelope. And it was very much of, of the way she operated. She wrote every, she wrote drafts of speeches. She wrote drafts of letters and commentary and things on the back of church bulletins, on grocery store bags, on whatever scrap of paper was available. And I can't even imagine what her kitchen must have looked like with you know, a lot of a lot of scraps. But she was very she was very interested in food and hoped to one day write a, uh, a kind of a nutrition book. She became a vegetarian early on, actually. And uh, so I love that we have her this handwritten Manila envelope recipe for pancakes from Rosa Parks. Yeah, that's great. Yes, and Zach. Yeah, I, that's a fantastic choice. Um, one of my favorites in the book is, I think, maybe the second recipe we include in the whole thing. Um, it's from the book American Cookery by Amelia Simmons, mm -hmm. which is the first ever cookbook written by an American and published in America from 1796. And specifically the recipe, um, we included several of hers because she's so um, it's such a landmark book. But the one I really appreciate is the pumpkin pudding, spelled P-O-M-P-K-I-N, but that's basically the basis for American pumpkin pie, which I love pumpkin pie. But what's so um, important about this book, besides just being first, is that it really pushes American ingredients that are native to North America. Before that, there were books published in America, cookbooks published in America, but they were based off of British books. So the ingredients weren't necessarily that easy to find in the colonies. And so she has ingredients such as molasses, cornmeal, and yes, pumpkin. And so this is considered the forerunner of pumpkin pie. Um, of course, back then, the recipes are a little imprecise. There's no specific temperature you're cooking it for, you know. 
So it's really funny to think about how recipes have evolved since the first American cookbook. Yeah, and and that is basically a 20th century thing to become so precise uh, about recipes. And uh, it's the bane of my existence when I write recipes because I hate it. I'm I'm much more of a throw this in, throw this in. (laughs) Exactly. An art versus science. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. And I hate when you chop up X number of uh, tomatoes to make a cup of chopped tomatoes. <laughs> and then you have like this little teeny bit of extra tomatoes, which of course I throw in anyway. But I, I find it really annoying that you even had to measure it. You know, <laughs> your eye was pretty good. You just had this much too much. And it's yeah. because of the size of the tomatoes. You know, it's not your fault that you have too much. And what do you do with them? You know, if you're if you're really one of those precision people, I I don't exactly. Well, then it reminds me of a very quick story of my um, wife. I believe it was her grandmother. One of her recipes involved, you know, I think it was maybe making meatballs, something along the lines. But it was, you know, make a handful of you know the breadcrumbs or the meat mixture. But she had very tiny hands, so of course that recipe, when it's passed down, when you have larger hands, it completely changes the dynamic of the recipe. Right. Right. My grandmother um, wouldn't throw anything away, and she had a, a, a teacup that the handle broke off of, and that became her cup measure. Oh, okay. So she would tell you, use three <laughs> cups of flour, but she meant this particular teacup. Right, exactly, exactly. So, yes, I understand that. But I love all the recipes with a wine glass of this. or. Yeah. <laughs> A knob of butter. Yes, yes definitely, yeah. definitely really, really difficult to yep. translate that into something, something else. I do also want to ask you a little bit about the Thomas Jefferson macaroni recipe. I, I mean, it's really, let me, let me go to it while we're talking about it. It's, um, he has that drawing of the macaroni machine. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um. I just, um, I found the whole thing with Thomas Jefferson reminding me of the whole controversy about Thomas Jefferson and James Hemings and how much credit do we give to Thomas Jefferson versus what we give to James Hemings. Um, Were you aware of all of those kinds of things as you were writing this whole cookbook, all of the sort of um, all of the credit that always goes to the people who write the history as opposed to the people who made the history necessarily? That's that's a really, really good question. Um, we do have a, a section that focuses on uh, James Hemings, who was uh, Jefferson's enslaved chef. Um, it's actually a really interesting juxtaposition. The The previous spread has the macaroni machine and, and pasta instructions for Jefferson's hand alongside a recipe of beaver tails that was sent to George Washington by someone in the Northwest Territories. But then on the next page, we talk about both James Hemings and then Washington's enslaved chef, Hercules Posey. And and this question of ownership is a really important one. You know, Jefferson, especially, he is such a important figure in American history. And, you know, there's talks of him, you know, inventing or bringing back ice cream to America, macaroni, all this other stuff. And and the truth is he definitely played a large part in that, but it was part of this effort of many people 
of what he learned in, in France and then came back and, and James Hemings was his, his, his cook, his enslaved cook. And so I, I think we tried to highlight those people like James Hemings and Hercules Posey who did play a role in the development of American cuisine, even if necessarily they don't always get the credit they deserve. And I also think that they are people who wound up influencing others as they taught other people to cook, especially somebody like James Hemings, who had learned so much while he was in France with Jefferson and was in the the kitchens of fine restaurants in France, came back and taught others, which then spreads it in a way that I don't think we we think about while we're just looking at a recipe um and that other people learned all these techniques because of him which i also think is important so now that this book is written um do you have any other culinary books um in mind We've had a number of ideas over the years what we can do with this cookbook collection, whether we focus on regions or culinary traditions. And this this we'll see how things go because this we know this is a popular topic and we know that we've got a lot to offer. And I think we will be having future conversations about what else we could share with the public. Absolutely. I I liked what what you said, um, Zach, when you were talking about the fact that the food of America could be anything because people from all over the world Absolutely. are here. When we talk about what is Southern food here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, I basically say if you eat it in the South, it's Southern food. <laughs> and that way it covers everything because there's no way to stop and say, oh, at this line in time, Everything before this line is Southern food, but anything that comes in after that is not. Because first of all, as we all move into the next century, the next decade, whatever, that timeline moves anyway, because people's memories change and mm -hmm, think, mm -hmm. well, this anything that happened while I was alive, oh, that's not old. You know, of course, <laughs> the older you get, the more you realize, well, that may be not so true anymore. But certainly I've had a lot of discussions with people who say, well, this is the way my grandmother did it. So therefore it must be the way. And then they proceed to tell me, and she would use a can of cream of mushroom soup in her <laughs> crawfish etouffee. And I'm thinking, I don't believe that that was an original recipe. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what, you know, that becomes the yeah. recipe, the quintessential recipe. I, I just love that about what people think and what they, their memories are. It, it, what they remember is the only thing that ever happened, you know. And so I think it's got to be really hard to go through all these books and pull out things that are relevant and that will resonate with people and help overcome some of our own personal biases about the past and what yeah. is true or what could only happen or whatever. You know, sometimes you have to start and tell people, you have to remember that there wasn't refrigeration in the 18th century, <laughs> you know? Yeah. People just think, well, there was always ice or there was always this or that, you know, it just, yeah, maybe if you're in Minnesota, there's always ice. <laughs> <laughs> always ice here in New Orleans. So yeah. 
So I, I I think that it's a really it's a really tough problem. I would love to have a conversation with you about what might be interesting about Southern food or even the food of Louisiana, because um, I'm not saying that you did this because I don't think you did, but I do find that there's a real difficulty when you're learning about American food and the food of early America, because early America as what the country was, was the 13 colonies. But there were other countries that had holdings in the Americas, mm -hmm. including North America, during that time that were making American food and that became part of America and their food came with them. And so when you don't ever think about anything but the English and the English historical influence, then you really lose the actual complexity of the food of America, I think, anyway. Because people had different attitudes. I know that people in um, some of the settlements in early America before it was actually America, when English people would come to the settlement uh, and find the settlements having everyone dead and read their journals and find out that they had starved to death because they wouldn't eat the food of the savages or things like that. And you think that seems really crazy, but people, that's what they wrote in their journals. And there wasn't, they were slaughtered. They just, with food all around them, wouldn't eat it because it wasn't English. Yeah. But in other parts of America, I don't think everyone felt that way. And I think that the Spanish probably didn't feel that way. The French didn't feel that way. And so they were eating much more broadly off the land than those early English colonists were. And I, I find that to be a really interesting question about the way we teach history and the way we think about things. Absolutely. You know, lots of parts there. I, I would say one thing that your, your discussion right there reminded me of is one book that we do have. It's called The Gulf City Cookbook. And this was a community cookbook. And we have a whole section on community cookbooks, which, as the name implies, were basically, you know, the progenitor of crowdsourcing. So this was maybe a church, a school, a neighborhood that raised funds for their organization by creating a cookbook of local recipes. And so we have the Library of Congress has a fantastic collection of community cookbooks. We only featured four because there's only so much space we can include. But this Gulf City cookbook from 1878 it um, ironically was published in Dayton, Ohio, but it was from Mobile, Alabama. And it's all about the Gulf cuisine and how it blends French, African, and indigenous cultures of the Mississippi Gulf Coast. In fact, it has one of the first jambalaya recipes that's been printed, spelled two words, jambolaya, <laughs> which I find really funny. Um, but it, it, it gets exactly to that point of the um, you know, combination of the various cuisines that did exist. Obviously, 1878 is way after America was founded. It's not the colonial period, but there are those roots, I'm sure, in you know the Spanish, French um, uh, colonists, you know, before uh, 1776 in that part of the country. So that's definitely one that definitely stands out to me. And another one of the community cookbooks, which is from Kentucky, going back to your point about you know we always assume refrigeration and that kind of thing existed in the past, right? 
What's so fascinating about this book is it really talks about hyper local ingredients to the point. This is one of my favorite quotes that for a recipe for pickling walnuts, and of course, pickling is a somewhat of a lost art these days, but that aside, it says the readers should quote, gather walnuts about the 10th of June. So it's that specific to when walnuts are the best, the 10th of June. Now, yeah. it today, I'm sure with global warming, the 10th of June is a completely different, you know, right. climate to what it was in uh, that book from 1875, The Housekeeping in the Bluegrass. That's what that one is. So it, it's that's what's so fascinating about the book is showing the development of these hyper-local or, you know, very regional cuisines and just how they transform over time. Well, I want to thank you all very much for this. This was a great conversation. I thought that the book was really, really um, a, a wonderful kind of hodgepodge. I mean that in a good way, a hodgepodge of all the ways that we are American and the way we express our food in in some reflection of being American. I, I thought it was very fun to look at. I learned a lot and it's visually also very appealing. It's a really great book. I presume you can get this book, American Feast, anywhere? Yes, you can yes. get it online. You can get it, uh, we hope at your local bookstore, but it should be it should be available everywhere. You can get it through the Library of Congress shop as well. And uh, just go to loc.gov and find your way to the shop and You'll find some other cool things too. <laughs> okay, that sounds wonderful. Thanks so much for, for coming here today. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.